And as you turn to Acts chapter 9, which is on page 917 of your pew Bible, uh, I invite you to, to look to verse 19, or, or actually we're starting in verse 1, sorry. And, and, but I do invite you to stand as you're able. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in. And lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here uh, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to me, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine with me for a moment that you're one of the Christians in Damascus on the week when Saul is scheduled to arrive. You know this man well. You've heard much about him. You know that he is a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. You also know that he is a student of Gamaliel, but unlike his professor, unlike his teacher, Saul has taken this posture towards the church. He has decided to be a tormentor of everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. Everyone who sees Jesus as the way to true life and salvation. And so Saul 
doesn't just want to uh, chase the church out of Jerusalem. He wants to exterminate it. He wants to crush the church so that uh, this way of salvation through Jesus Christ is never again heard on the lips of another man, woman, or child. That is Saul's um, self-appointed mission. We know that earlier in the book of Acts, his professor, Gamaliel, still stood up and he was the one who said, hey, you know, you, you probably shouldn't go kill these Christians because uh, if they're right, then we're in big trouble. And if they're wrong, well, God's going to deal with them anyways. But Saul says, you know, I'm going to go a step further than my professor. I'm going to hunt these Christians down, even if I have to go 150 500, 800, 1,000 miles on my bare feet to find them. And I'm going to drag them back to Jerusalem. So still imagining for just a moment that you're one of the Christians in Damascus and you hear that that man, that Saul, that tormentor of the church is coming. He's trying to sniff you out. Would you think to pray for Saul's conversion? And what would you believe? What would you think uh, of the reports coming to you that God stopped Saul in the middle of the road on his way to Damascus and changed his heart and, and took him from a Christ hater to a Christ follower? Would you believe such a report? Well, the scriptures... And this passage bring you into that world, a world in which you are hearing these reports of of Saul of Tarsus being stopped and saved. And in fact, as we hear about this amazing conversion, we're actually hearing a story that the scriptures tell us not once, but three times in the book of Acts. Three times we hear of Saul of Tarsus being saved. Once in, in, uh, in this third person way, And then twice from his own lips. And and the book of Acts wants us to hear this account three times in a row. Why? Because if we really understand what happened to Saul, then we're brought into the very heart of the gospel and the very heart of what God is doing in the lives of sinners and in our lives. So we have to get Saul. We, we have to understand Saul. And we have to understand his conversion and ask these hard questions about what we would do if we were in the position of these Christians who hear reports of his conversion. Well, what happened to Saul? We really need to understand what went on in this account. And uh, the simplest way to explain it is this. That Saul, the hunter was hunted by a stronger hunter than himself. Saul got out-hunted. That's how one commentator puts it. And I love it. Because what is Saul doing? He's on this warpath. He has in his hands letters that allow him to hunt down Christians. And like some grand inquisitor, grab them by their their hair and, and pull them to Jerusalem. Where, where what? They'll probably be, be killed, just like Stephen the martyr. And he's delighting in this. Everything in him is just this surging with hatred to go hunt down Christians. So there he is on his warpath, 
on his way to Damascus, where, where many Christians have, have fled because of what he did to Stephen in Jerusalem. And, and here he goes with the letters in his hands, letters to accuse them, letters to deliver them. And then right in the middle of that road, what happens? Boom. A beam of light. You know, it reminds me, in fact, of, um, of a time when a friend and I heard out in rural Ohio that, um, that, that there was a fox that kept creeping in and, and stealing chickens from his family's farm. And so the two of us stayed up one night and we, we were sitting in, in his family's uh, pickup truck and, and we were waiting for that moment when the fox, we'd see the fox and, and we did. We, we, we saw it making its way through the field and just when it got up to the chicken coop, we, we turned on the lights full beam and there was the fox just stopped dead in the tracks. Its eyes were wide. You just saw it was, it didn't know what to do. It started moving in both directions, but it was stuck. And I think that's exactly what happens to Saul here. Saul of Tarsus has been caught in the high beam of heaven. And he realizes that he is being hunted by none other than, than God himself. And he says, Lord, who are you? says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. Whom you have persecuted. Three truths which Saul would have been shocked by, but, uh, but, but that he, deep in his heart, he already knew. Deep in his heart, he'd been suppressing, but now he just can't hide from it. When he hears that voice booming out of the light, and that light has him, has him trapped in his, in his uh, path, he first of all realizes that Jesus really is alive. The reports about him were true. The, that Easter message of him rising in, again from the dead, it's no fable. It's reality. Because here he is right now speaking to him from his throne on heaven. He's living, he's ruling, and he's reigning. The second thing that Saul realizes is that Jesus is no mere mortal. He's no mere man. He is divine. He's God. He addresses him, Lord, who are you? Lord, master, the name that's devoted to God himself. And and, and that one who's called Lord says, I'm Jesus. And that light beaming down upon him is the same light that we see time and time again in the Old Testament. It's, It's a manifestation of the glory of God from his heavenly throne. And Jesus is the one who emanates that light. Jesus is alive. Jesus is God. And then the third thing he sees, which certainly would have been the most disturbing to him, is that Jesus is the one he's been persecuting. You can imagine what Saul said. What? How how have I been persecuting you? I'm I'm just chasing down these Christians. Well, it happens to be that the bond between Christ and his body, Christ and his church, is so close and so tight knit that if you hate the church of Jesus, you hate Jesus himself. It's a lesson for, for those today that say, you know, I, I think I'm good with Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with this church. You can't say that because the church and Jesus are, are so united that when we're persecuted, who's really the one who's being persecuted? Christ. Christ is the reason why, why Saul hates Christians. It's because he doesn't like this Jesus. He doesn't like the message about Jesus. 
He's a Pharisee. Deep in his heart, he loves his rules. He loves his religion. He loves his ritual. And anyone who would try to wrestle that out of his arms, he'll hunt them down and kill them. Even if if it be Jesus himself. In that moment, when all of these truths are surging at Saul at the same time, Saul realizes that he can't hide from it anymore. In fact, friends, Jesus has been hunting Saul for a long time now. We know this because in chapter 26, the third time that we hear of Saul's conversion, Saul says, he reports something else that Jesus said to him. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, why do you kick against the goads? Another way to say that is, why do you fight against the spurs that I'm, I'm, I'm putting in your flesh? Here's another way to put that. Jesus has been pricking Saul's conscience for days, for months, maybe even years. He's been pricking his conscience. And the biggest prick in Saul's conscience was when he stood before Stephen and saw him martyred and saw him killed and saw him put down like an animal. But he heard Stephen's um, profession of faith in Christ. And and when Saul saw that, it, it bothered him. It was like a goad that pressed in on his conscience. And deep in him, something said, what you're doing is wrong. You're on the wrong side here. And yet Saul pushed that down. He suppressed it and he said, no, 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 no. I'm going, I'm going after these Christians. But here, in, in the, stuck in that, that high beam from heaven, hunted by heaven, Saul can resist it no more. And he's speechless. And then suddenly the lights go out. He sees nothing. His eyes are open, but he's blind. It's in that moment that Saul realizes that he's been outhunted. He's come face to face with a more powerful hunter than him. Now, why is he blind? Why does he stumble around blind and confused? Well, um, the reason why, friends, is recorded in, in that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. I was blind, but now I see. You see, this, this is a physical way in which Saul is being humbled by the grace of God. Being shown that apart from God's enlightening um, uh, light in his life, he can do nothing and he can see nothing. And in fact, he is dead in his sins and he is blind to the true realities of God. That's Saul apart from God's grace. And that's each one of us. That's each one of you apart from God's enlightening grace. Stumbling around with your eyes open, but you can't see. God is saying, Saul, this is you. This is who you really are. Now let me give you the light of new life in Christ Jesus. And when he connects, when he humbles him enough to be brought into fellowship with the people of God, it's at that moment that that something like scales fall off his eyes. And Saul sees, I was blinded by the power of this world. I was blinded by the devil. And now I see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's baptized. When those scales fall from his eyes, the humbling power of God's grace has done its work. And he's a brand new man with a brand new mission to be a chosen instrument and a vessel 
uh, to, to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? How, how, how this man who was on a war path to kill Christ followers is now himself a Christ follower and a chosen vessel? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I wonder, friends, if you've encountered the risen Lord Jesus. Have you seen his glory? Have you had those skills fall, fall from your eyes and embraced him by faith and said, Jesus, you are my Lord. I submit to you. I'm done with seeking life on my own terms. I'm done with trying to control my own future. I give it to you. Give me a new path. Give me a new mission. Give me a new purpose. I don't care what anyone else thinks. Have you come to that point? Jesus is still on his throne today. And he still calls sinners like you to embrace him by faith. Now, I've heard many of you give a testimony to God's grace in your life. And in fact, one of the takeaways from this passage, I think, friends, is this. We need to talk about our conversions more often. We need to tell of stories of God's grace in our lives. I know that not all of us have a dramatic story like Saul. That's okay. My story, by, by, uh, by comparison, is, is pretty mundane. Grown in a Christian family, raised, and there was a moment I remember, I, I vaguely remember, in which I, I, was, I, was, I found myself stuck in the light of God's high beam. And I said, I need Jesus. And everything he'd been working in my life with my family brought me to my knees. And I said, I, I, I need to embrace this Savior now. And many of you have stories like this. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as Saul's. If you have the elements of redeeming grace, reaching into your lives, working through family, working through other people, and bringing you to a point where God has taken an initiative to save your soul, then you need to talk about it. And we need to hear it. I know of specific people in this room who have amazing stories where who would have thought that you know, during their time in college or, or at a certain job, God would connect them with, with some, uh, some saint who, uh, who is unknown to the world, but is known deeply to you, who brought you the gospel, and God used it to save you. So, so a little homework for you this week is, you know, in the upcoming month, find someone in this church and, and ask them, hey, how did you become a Christian? What was that like? Ask them about their testimony to God's grace. And then say, what's he doing right now in your life? That's what happened to Saul. Life-changing, purpose-changing change as he is converted and brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is alive. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one I have been persecuting, but no more. Now I serve him. Now I submit to him. Now, friends, what does this mean for us? I think we've already seen that that this is rich with meaning for us. But I want to point to two specific takeaways, two specific lessons that that if you remember anything else from Saul's conversion, I want you to take with you. And the first is this. No one is too far gone for God's grace. No one is out of reach from God's high beam uh, light of the gospel. Think for a moment. Who is the person in your life who you would find least likely to believe the gospel? 
Maybe a family member or friend who's pushed against the gospel for years. Almost a stubborn, calcified kind of resistance has set in. Where they've said, you know, I, I know, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. Don't, don't even start. Don't even start. Maybe it's that person. Maybe it's an activist who opposes Christianity, a public figure who you've seen, not in person, but maybe on, on the airwaves uh, and on the television screen. And um, they have made it their life's purpose to, to show that Christian beliefs are outdated and ridiculous and, and um, a plague to society. Maybe it's that person. Maybe it's someone who is, is, is deeply committed to a same-sex relationship. Maybe it's someone, a friend perhaps, who's deeply embedded in the culture of another religion. You say, yeah, it's not going to be them. They're not going to become a Christian. Because they're so ingrained in that culture and, 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 and that religion is, is so much of, of, of their life. They wouldn't become a Christian. Not them. Really? If God can save a bloodthirsty hunter like Saul, then he can save Anyone, anyone at all. I want you to look at Acts chapter 26, and that's where you'll see Paul talking about just how committed he was against the gospel. Look at this, Acts 26, 9 through 11. He says, before King Agrippa, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You see, friends, who are we talking about here? I've already let it slip. This isn't just Saul of Tarsus. This is Paul of Tarsus. This is the great apostle of the faith. His Hebrew name is Saul. His Greek name is Paul. Yes, this one who, who had this radical change is none other than the apostle that you know who wrote First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, the Thessalonians, and more. This, this is the, the Paul. This is the Saul we're talking about. Now, if God could take someone that hating of the gospel and transform them into someone uh, who is such an instrument in our own salvation, then he can take anyone and save them. Do you believe that? Friends, I think too often we're thinking in worldly terms about who God can change. I think, yeah, not them they weren't raised in a Christian family. Not them because statistically odds are against them. Who cares about odds? We're talking about God. We're talking about the, the hunter of, from heaven who arrests sinners with his grace and transforms them by his love. God loves to shatter our expectations. He loves to say, you've got it all wrong. And he loves to show us that it's, it's not... It's not the people that are, are, are more moral or more capable or, or more disposed to the gospel uh, who, who, are, who are saved. 
sometimes he loves to just shatter those kinds of expectations and says, it's all by my grace and don't you forget it. So we shouldn't forget that. Maybe, maybe you're the person, you say. I'm hearing this today. I'm, I'm here to see how Christians worship. And I am the person who's least likely to believe the gospel. I invite you to keep listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I also call you this morning to stop kicking against the goats. Stop resisting the pricking of your conscience that the Lord is is doing by the power of the Spirit. Don't resist God's grace, but embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Yes, that's something only he can do in your heart, but I call you to believe in him because the spotlight of his word is, is, is on you even now. He says, you, can't, you can run, but you can't hide. Believe. Embrace Christ Jesus. Friends, there's, there's another message here. No one is too far from God's grace. Yes, that's right. But also, when God saves sinners, we'd better be ready. When God saves sinners, we'd better be prepared as a church. Why is that? Because we also have Ananias in this passage. And sometimes you get to the Ananias part and everyone just kind of stops talking about it because Paul's conversion is such a big deal. Well, Ananias is crucial to this because God doesn't save someone without directing them to the people of God, without connecting them to Christ's church. And and that's exactly what he does here. He takes this this transformed sinner and and, uh, he... He calls Ananias. He says, Ananias, here I am, Lord. I have somewhere for you to go. Okay, Lord. I have someone for you to meet. Okay. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Wait a minute. I've heard of him. You're not talking about that guy, are you? You're not talking about the tormentor of Christ's church. You're asking me to be... Goldilocks to the big bad wolf. Brush his teeth. I don't want to brush the big bad wolf's teeth. He says, it's exactly what I'm calling you to do because guess what? I've saved him. He's been transformed by my grace, Ananias. Someone's got to bring him into the church. Someone's got to baptize him. You can understand the reservation and the fear in Ananias' voice, can't you? And maybe, maybe some of you have experienced that too when you're called to, to move towards certain people. But I love what he does in verse 17. He sees Saul. He's got all that fear, the reservations in his mind, but he obeys the Lord. And the first thing he says is this, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. You know what that's like? That's like a member, a former member of the KKK coming to Christ, walking into a black church, and the first person that comes up to him says, Brother, I'm glad you're here. That's what it's like. It's amazing. 
Are we ready to extend that kind of welcome to unexpected converts? Are we ready to move towards people in love who have been broken down by God's grace, transformed, and maybe we still have questions. But is, is our first reaction when we hear that someone has given a credible profession of faith in Christ, is our first reaction, yeah, I want to make sure that they're fully reformed. Or is our reaction, praise God. He's my brother. She's my sister. Let's get to work. You know, the only way we could really be ready for that is if right now we prepare by reflecting on God's grace to us. Now, there's... Have you ever thought about how just like Saul, just like Paul, we were rebels against God's kingdom? We were blind. We were running from him. We were ignorant to, to the, uh, the truths of his gospel. But now we see that wasn't because of you. That wasn't because you were smarter. That wasn't because you, uh, you had more sensibility than the next guy. It's because of God's grace. And it's only when you really get that and have that hammered into your heart that you can go up to someone who's been, who's been uh, breathing threats and destruction against your church and your family. And you can embrace them and hug them and say, brother. You're just like me. We should pray that we'll be ready. We'll be taught sufficiently by God's grace. So that when that time comes, we should expect it to happen. When the unexpected sinner rolls into these doors, arms are open, we say. By faith in Christ, you're my brother. You're my sister. Come here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for amazing grace that transforms lives. We thank you for what you did in Paul's life and how indeed, I, 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 I think I could venture to say, Lord, that in each and every one of our lives, Paul has been instrumental to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, now I, I pray for those that have not yet embraced the gospel that they would do so and that, Lord, uh, you would continue to be that great hound from heaven who would not stop pursuing them, uh, even if they run to the far ends of the earth, and that by your love you would win them just as you would have won us. And, Lord, uh, Lord we, we, we pray that we would be instruments to this and that we would be humble to receive and to, and to join in fellowship with whoever you would send through our doors who embraces Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his great name. Amen. Now we come to the time of the Lord's Supper and I invite um, our elders to come forward to help me serve.